Good evening. Welcome back. Tonight's class is graciously dedicated by David and Ida Schattenstein in the loving and sacred memory of Rabbi Gavriel Noyach and Rifki Holtzberg and all of the Kedoshim who were massacred in the terror attack last year in Mumbai, India. Tonight's class is also dedicated in the loving memory of Mrs. Naomi Cohen, who passed away on Simchas Torah Sunday afternoon. They tell the story about this guy who would not just talk in his sleep, complete sermons and speeches he presented during his sleep. For hours and hours, this guy would not stop talking in his sleep. Finally, after a marriage for 30 years, his wife wakes him up in the middle of the night, and she says, darling, I had enough of 30 years listening to your speeches, a whole night in my sleep. It's sleep time, it's not talking time. Do me a favor, just be quiet, stop speaking. And he looks at her and he says, honey, if you would allow me to talk in the middle of the day, then I would remain silent during the night. This evening we explore two words in the opening portion of the Torah, which we begin learning again fresh, a new year, a new beginning, Parshas Bereshis, the book of Genesis. Two words which capture within them one of the most fundamental ideas about gender relationships, which will emerge in studies thousands of years later and is today a very popular idea in the world of psychology and in the world of understanding gender relationships and marriage and so forth. You see, in the opening portion of the Torah Beratius, we have the first 1,600 years of human history. The portion of Beratius is filled with enrapturing tales and stories that encapsulate the most profound mysteries and challenges of the human condition, including one of the great enigmas behind gender relationships. It all begins with an innocent verse in the second chapter of Beratius, in the second chapter of Genesis, describing the purpose to raise on the etra of marriage and of having two distinct genders in the world of humans. Open up source number one. Beratius Beis Yud Ches Vayoymer Hashem Elikim. God said, Loi toiv heyoisa adam levadoi. It is not good, good for man to be alone. Let me make for him a helper against him. We understand the message clearly. Till this point, man is alone. Adam, the first human being, is alone. God says it's not good for man to be levadi. Therefore, he needs a relationship. He needs a partner. He needs a spouse. This spouse will, of course, become Chava, Eve, the first mother, the first wife. Let me make for him Ezer Kenegdai, a helper against him. 
Yet this term seems deeply enigmatic and strange. How can the same woman be an Azer Kenegdai? If she is a helper, she is not against him. If she is against him, she's not a helper. How do we reconcile the two? And why does the Torah use this strange term to define the purpose of man, the first man acquiring a wife, a spouse? It is so strange that even Rashi, the basic biblical commentator, the great French scholar of the 12th century, Rabbi Shlema Yitzchaki, is perturbed by the terminology. And as you see in source number two, Rashi says, you can open up source number two right under the video, you have your curriculum. What does Rashi say? Zacha Ezer. Rashi says, indeed, the Torah is talking about two different types of husbands, two different types of wives, or in two different states of their lives. If he merits, his wife is an Azer, she's a helper. If he doesn't merit, then she is connected, she's against him, fighting him, declaring wars against him. So you're dealing really with two different types of marital situations. If he merits, his wife is there for him. If not, she's also there, but she's against him. Yet, obviously, this is a difficult explanation in the verse because it sounds like the Pasuk is saying, who is the wife? She is Ezer Kenegde. She is a helper against him. Yet, according to Rashi, it's in two different states or two different marriages or two different couples. One wife is a helper. Another wife is against him. This evening... I want to present another interpretation. It's an interpretation which has its origins in a work, Torah Ur, by Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, by the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. He explains it on a spiritual level, but this allows us to appreciate it also on a practical level. This explanation on a practical level is also discussed by the Nitziv in his commentary, Hamek Dovar, Harchiv Dovar. The Nitziv, which is an acronym for Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, was the famous rabbi and Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva in Valozhin, a city in Lithuania. He passed away in the year Tofresh Nun Beis, 1892, and in, in his exceptional commentary on Chumash Hamik Dover, he gives the following interpretation. And here we will see, as I opened up the class, that two words in Genesis capture and convey an extremely fundamental idea, which only recently, in the last few decades, have been developed and explained at length to show how important they are to understand the nature of relationships and what it takes to have a good relationship. And the point the Torah is making is very straightforward. God says it's not good for man, for masculinity to be alone. What Adam needs is an azer, he needs a help. He needs a partner to help him. How? Kinegdoi by his wife being against him. Which means, the greatest help and assistance the wife, the spouse can provide to her husband is by being kinegdoi, 
against him, by the fact that she is dissimilar to him, that she is not identical to him, that she has her own perspectives, her own personality, her own individual character. And therefore, by not being similar to him, by representing something different, something other than the husband's personality, a tension is created, a contrast is created. We have two very different forces, two very different personalities. And it's this tension which can be viewed in two ways. One is as a negative phenomenon, a negative factor. Comes the Torah and says, no, this kinegdoi, the opposition of the wife, actually constitutes the greatest help for her husband. Because if she was identical to him, they would remain in the same form and there would be no opportunity for true growth, for true transcendence. Every human being is fixed in his or her own orbit Intellectually, genetically, of course, physiologically, emotionally. And it's only by the opposition, by him being in a relationship with somebody who is different than he, somebody who is not like he, this allows both of them to experience the true azer and to be there for each other, to truly help each other. Let me give a very practical example. It is common in relationships, I guess in the Jewish world it's even more common, that the husband conveys an opinion, and of course his wife disagrees with him. She has another opinion. She may criticize him. She may disagree with him. Somebody once asked me, said, Rabbi Jacobson, I want to ask you a question. When I am alone in the forest, nobody's there, and I express an opinion, and my wife is not present, am I still wrong? They tell the anecdote about a guy asks his friend, Charlie, how is your marriage going? And he says, I'll tell you. It changed over the years, you know. When we got engaged, Charlie says, I was doing all of the talking. She was doing all of the listening. We got married it changed around. She began doing all of the talking and I began doing all of the listening. Now it's 10 years later, we both do all of the talking and the neighbors do all of the listening. Sometimes it's very difficult for husbands to listen to their wives disagreeing with them. What they hold is a great dream, maybe a very successful strategy, and the wife denigrates it. The wife puts it down. She disagrees with the husband. What happens sometimes in relationships is the man gets very angry. He may begin hollering at her. He may insult her. He may put her down. What happens then? One of two things can happen. Either she screams back and they get into a fight which sometimes does never ends or has its periods. He explodes and she explodes. Sometimes something else happens. The woman who is very mature decides, you know, I don't need this in my marriage. So therefore, she stops telling him what he doesn't want to hear. She doesn't need him to scream anymore. She doesn't need him to insult anymore. So she just learns to remain silent and she makes a sacrifice. 
She will let him do what he wants, even though she feels it may be counterproductive or destructive. At least let there be some peace and harmony in the home, especially when there are children. Some women go even further. The husband screams for so long that they actually repress their opinions and their emotions. They don't feel anymore. They don't think anymore. They can't afford to because it would create too much opposition. Who loses most out of this? The husband. Why does he lose most out of this? Because he remains stuck in his own paradigm. He may be intelligent, he may be successful, he may be sophisticated, he may be artistic, he may be brilliant in many ways. But there's no human being who can't grow. There's no human being who's perfect. There's no human being who is not limited, who is not narrow in one way or in another way. And sometimes we make rash decisions. Sometimes we're impulsive. Sometimes we get overtaken by certain intense emotions and we make the wrong decisions. Comes the Torah and says, Azer, the woman constitutes the great help for her husband. How? By sometimes being kinegdoi. By sometimes voicing an opinion of feeling a perspective which opposes his. This does not mean, of course, that it is a biblical injunction upon every woman to disagree with her husband 100% of the time. And she can bring a great verse. Azer, I want to help you, so therefore connect it. I always have to disagree with you. It also does not mean that a woman ought to criticize and disagree with her husband in a way that is insulting to him and disrespectful to him. What it does mean is that it is counterproductive and unhealthy and wrong when a man creates a climate, an atmosphere in the home where his wife must always agree with his opinion, answering amen to all of his declarations and sometimes meshagasan and acquiescing to every perspective of his. I want you to see it in the words of the Nitziv, of Rabbi Neftali Tzvi Yehud Berlin, source number three. A few lines, it's a long explanation there, but a few lines, he says, open source number three, HaMekdavr of the Nitziv. HaKavana Shahanigud Yiyelezer. The meaning of this pasuk is, opposition constitutes help. Shademishu Kaasani Viragzani. Sometimes he says a man is very angry, so he has a very bad temper. His temperament is lousy, he gets angry very fast. He screams, he hollers, he gets upset. So sometimes a woman fuels the anger, she agrees with him. She says, yeah, you're right, you have to do this to this person, you have to make this call, you have to take this move. She agrees with him. She doesn't want to disagree with her husband. She wants to be on his side. She wants to support him in his anger, in his fury, in his ire. So she agrees. She's an azer. So the Nitziv actually here gives a very original interpretation. He says, by being an azer, she is actually connected. Sometimes by helping him, you're opposing him. You know why? Because he's going to calm down. And then he may have had mistake. He may have made mistakes that it's going to be very hard for him to rectify. And the fact that she added fuel to the fire, she added fire and wood and lumber just to build up the fury and anger is really not helping him. At the moment, he may enjoy it because he's in a bad state. But when he sobers up from his anger, because when you're angry, you're not sober. 
When you're angry, you're drunk on your anger, which is why one of the great Hasidic masters said you should not say anything or make any decisions when you're angry. You should wait 61 minutes, not 60 minutes, 61 minutes. So by helping him, she's actually not helping him. And he continues, But if conversely, if when her husband is burning with anger, she opposes him, she tries to calm him down, she tries to assuage his pain, she tries to bring out the benefits of the person he's getting so angry at. She calms him down. Initially, he may get very upset with her. Why don't you agree with me? Why aren't you supporting me in my fight? Why aren't you helping me in my anger? Why are you being against me? But later he will figure out that by being against him, by disagreeing with them, she's actually helping him. So you see, we can read the word two words in two ways. Ezer Kenegde. Sometimes by helping him, she is against him. She is not serving his interests. Conversely, Ezer Kenegde. Sometimes she helps him by being against him, by disagreeing with him. Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi Dalter Rebbe in Er explains thus the different nature of two blessings we make at every wedding, at every chuppah, and for the Shevabrach, for the seven days after the wedding. There's two blessings which have a very similar ending, but with a little different. With a little difference. In the Shevabrach, we make one blessing which begins with the word Sameach to Samach Ahovim. And we conclude, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mesameach Chasan Vechala. Blessed are you, God, who brings joy to the groom and the bride. The last blessing, the last blessing of the Shevabrachas, where we talk about Meheri Yishama, Bari Yehuda, Vachutzis Yerushalayim, Kal Sosan, Vachal Simcha, Kal Chasan, Vachal Kala, Kal Mitzhalais Chasan, Mechoposam, Ona Orim, Mishte Neginosam, Borachata Hashem, Misameach Chasan, Imhakala. Blessed are you, God, who brings joy to the groom with the bride. Which means. The primary joy is originated by the bride. Together with the bride, the groom also gets joy. In the first blessing, we say, He brings joy to the groom and to the bride. First the groom, and then it goes to the bride. The last blessing, it's, And Rabbi Shnei Zalman says, explains it on a spiritual level, but it also exists practically, that there's two elements in a relationship. One element in the relationship is, there's Mesameach Chasan, the husband experiences something powerful, something joyous, and then he passes it on to the Kala, to his wife, to his bride. Sometimes it works the other way around. Sometimes he, from, from his own perspective, he would not reach the state. He'll make mistakes that will make him miserable. His Kala has to put him in his place. His wife has to guide him in a sensitive and wise and clever way. As I said, when you insult somebody, you're disrespectful to somebody, usually it just adds more anger. But in a wise and sensible way, she brings the joy to him. From her joy, from her clarity of vision, he can also grow and experience simcha. Now, 
Some of you may be thinking, nice speech, good idea, but how do we do it? How do couples guarantee that the proper proportions are preserved? How do we ensure that the against him component of the spouse doesn't overwhelm and subdue the helper dimension of the spouse? Frankly, we know that some couples have a very difficult time at this because she thinks it's always a mitzvah to argue with them. There are women who put down their husbands, they denigrate their husbands, they scoff at their husbands, sometimes even to other people. And conversely, some husbands feel it's a mitzvah to argue with their spouse, and if she says one thing, he has to say the opposite. So suddenly the kinegdoi just creates a nightmare in the home. No, no peace, no positive energy, no serenity, and it's not good for neither, it's not fear for neither. How do we create the proportion between the two? Well, you need to be mature. You have to be kind, mature, kind. Kindness is critical. When people are not kind, when they're not, in Yiddish there's an expression, a gute mensch, you have to be a good person. If you're not good, if you're selfish, if you're narcissistic, if you're egotistical, if you can't celebrate another person's happiness and success, you have to work on yourself. You have to refine your character. These are very general comments, but there's something more specific. And for this, I'm going to ask you, to open up source number four. I want to study two lines, three lines of the Talmud, of the Gemara. And let us learn something from this observation in the Talmud. Written 1,700 years ago, source number four, Mesechet Brachas, Tav Samach Aleph Amad Aleph. Talmud tracted Brachas 61.1. So, the Gemara. Rebavohu Rami, the Talmudic sage Rabbi Avo, asked the following contradiction. There are two verses in Genesis which gives us two descriptions of the creation of the first two human beings. One verse says, God created Adam and Eve as a Zachar and a cave. He created two creatures, masculine one and a feminine one. Zachar, a man, and a cave, a woman. Another verse says, in the image of God, God created Adam, one man. Not two, Zacher and Akeva. So who was created? Was there created one man or two people? And the Gemara answers, Initially, God entertained the thought to create two distinct people. A Zacher and an Akeva, a man and a woman. In fact, he did this with all of the animal species. All the animal species were created not one, but double. Sets, peers, couples. Whether the horse or the sheep or the goat, you have the male and the female so they could procreate and life can go on, can progress. With humanity, God initially thought to create two. And therefore, one verse says, Zachar and Akeva, Barab. But at the end, he decided to create one, Adam. And this single body of Adam fused components of masculinity, components of femininity. Until we have in this verse that we open the class with, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And that's when he separates. He creates what's called surgical decoupling between Adam and Chava, and they become two separate individuals. What is the meaning behind this Talmud? If God wanted to create them as two, why did he create them as one? And then he separated them. One possible interpretation that was once presented by a famous rabbi whose name was Rabbi Moshe Avigdor Amiel. Rabbi Amiel was a rabbi in Antwerp, 
and then he made Aliyan, he became the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. And he has uh, essays and sermons on Bereshus. And he gives the po following possible interpretation. He says, perhaps the Talmud is trying to teach us how a married couple reflecting Adam and Eve, Adam and Chav, ought to relate to each other. Because in our marriages, there also ought to be an in the beginning and an in the end. Just as with Adam and Eve, in the beginning God wanted to make two, but at the end he actually made one. In our marriages too, there is a beginning and there is an end. In the beginning, a husband and a wife ought to be two separate people. Each party has the full right to express his or her opinions without inhibition, freely. Everyone ought and has the right to challenge his or her spouse to grow taller, to grow deeper, and to grow finer. That's in the beginning. In the end, we have to find a way to reconcile our different views into one unified pattern of behavior, making out of many one. Yes, there is an important notion here that there has to be two in the beginning. A husband can't create a climate where there's only one voice. You're not good alone. You sometimes, frankly, have to be saved from yourself. So in the beginning, there are two. And that's why God initially thinks, let me create two separate beings. In our marriage, we have to have that in our own beginnings also. We're separate people. And we have different perspectives and different ways of doing things. But you cannot let that division to remain permanent. Somehow, you have to learn from each other and from both opinions, from the diversity of opinions, somehow create a harmonious decision, harmonious experience. Don't leave it by two. In the beginning, two. At the end, one. This may be one of the great symbolisms behind a very interesting distinction in Jewish law. You know, we wrapped tefillin, and we have two types of tefillin. We have tefillin shal yad and tefillin shal roish. There's the tefillin, the phylacteries. The man puts on his arm. There's the tefillin the man puts shal roish on his head. But there's a big difference. The tefillin we place on our head, tefillin shal roish, is conspicuously divided into four sections and chambers. The tefillin shal yad is not divided into any chambers. The tefillin we place on our arm is conspicuously made of one chamber, which means, practically speaking, tefillin is made out of the hide of an animal. In tefillin shorosh, that hide must be split and different chambers are created. And into each chamber we place another portion of the Bible. Shema, v'hayim shemaya, kadesh v'hayikiviyacha. And when you look at Tefillin Sharosh, somebody has Tefillin on his arm, you can see there's a line separating each chamber. There's a split, there's a division. In Tefillin Shalyan and Tefillin on our arm, there's no division. All of the same four portions that you place in the Tefillin on your head are placed also in the Tefillin on your arm. It has the same material, but it's all on one piece of parchment, which is rolled up and placed into one box, not into four different sections like the Tefillin on the head. Why? One of the spiritual or psychological symbolic explanations is on a head level, on the analytical level, 
diversity is desirable. Taking a marriage. On an analytical level, diversity, not only is it not negative, it's constructive, it's positive. There is divisiveness. There are fragmentations. Let each party argue his or her point without shame. Don't melt. Don't disintegrate because your wife disagrees with you or your husband disagrees with you. On the contrary, celebrate the diversity because that will allow you to see things in a way which you have never seen them before. So instead of immediately becoming defensive and retreating, like many do, they say, okay, you're right, forget it, I don't feel, I don't think, do it any way you like, you're any way right. You know how it is? I'm sure it doesn't happen to you, but it happens to your neighbor. Your wife disagrees with you. You're right. You're always right. Forever you're right. I'm always wrong. I'm always foolish. That's not the way to go about it. Some people do it the other way. They intimidate. They begin insulting. You're stupid. You're foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. No way. I'm the boss. Both ways are destructive. It's good for there to be diversity. is not evil. But when you get to an arm level, the level of implementation and action. There has to be one path. There has to be one verdict. There has to be one pattern of behavior because if not, chaos might reign. On the head level, let diversity reign. On the practical level, concrete implementation, how the house runs, how you educate your children, and so on and so forth. Where are you going on vacation? Which restaurant are you going out to eat to? How much money we're spending on this? How much money we're spending on this? When it comes down to practicality, to implementation, here you have to have oneness. Now, let's take this to the next level. As we know, every story, every observation, every mitzvah in the Torah has a physical, concrete interpretation. It also has a metaphysical dimension. So in Torah Ayr, in one of the great Hasidic works of Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, he explains this verse from a spiritual perspective. As we know, God and his people are often compared in the Bible to a groom and a bride, to a husband and a wife. So this verse, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper against him. Can also be understood symbolically as a statement concerning the relationship between God and humanity. You see, prior to the creation of the world, Ha Adam, the man, the ultimate man, Prophet Yecheskel describes him, Ha Adam, Ha Kisi, the supernal man, the ultimate man with a capital M, was alone. God was alone before the creation of the world. Nothing outside of him. There was no otherness. All pervading, all truthful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Even after creating the world, God could have revealed his presence in our lives so that we would all instinctively acknowledge that God is still alone because the entire universe is essentially an extension of divine energy, of divine light. And yet, 
God chose to create tremendous opposition towards him himself. He chose to create a world that would eclipse his reality completely and even oppose him. God chose to create a human being with the ability to deny him, to ignore him, to expel him, to completely eclipse his reality. Why would God arrange such a situation? Why did God create such opposition to him, to himself? And the answer is, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper against him. What this represents on a spiritual level, says the Alter Rebbe Rebbe Shnei Zaman of Liadi in it is that God's profoundest pleasure and help stems precisely from the opposition to him. It's not good for Adam to be levadai. God did not want to remain in a state of levadai, of exclusi- exclusivity, of aloneness. Einoid malvadai, there's only him and there's nothing besides him. No. When a human being who by his very nature feels himself detached from God, cracks the shell of his physicality to discover the light of God within. When a person challenges the coarseness of his nature, to find the tiny flame of idealism within his presence. When a person kindles a single flame of truth in a house of lies. When a person probes deeply into his or her heart, and in the inner recesses of his or her heart finds the spark of God, the truth of God in himself, herself, and the world around us. This gives God a special help, a profound pleasure, which if he would remain alone, he could never achieve. And that's the secret why, in this verse, which we opened up, source number one, Vayoymer Hashem Elohim, we have both names of God. Because the two names of God represent these two forces. The name of Yudke Vavke Hashem represents God's ability to express himself infinitely. Elohim represents God's ability to withhold his revelation and his expression, Elohim represents Midas Hatzimtzum, the ability to hold himself back, to limit his expression. So what happens is, Hashem is the source of divine expression, Elohim is the source of divine concealment. So in this verse we have an interplay between both names, Vayoymer Hashem and Elohim. If there would only be Hashem, Yudke Vavke, he would be alone because we would see how the whole world is not only dependent on him, but part of him. But also Elikim speaks, and Elikim says the greatest help, the greatest beauty, the greatest depth is created precisely by connecting, by the opposition, by the fact that there is a concealment. And from that concealment, a new energy is created. A great pleasure is created when darkness is transformed into light. When in the opposition we find the light of God, and that's the secret Alter Rebbe says of another verse, when Isaac is born, the first Jew, he's named Yitzchak, laughter. And what does his mother Sarah say? Tzchaik asali aleikim. Aleikim made me laugh. There she uses the term aleikim, and the name of the first Jew is Tzchaik, laughter, Yitzchak. Why is the name of the first Jew laughter, a joke? Is that not a joke? But this is essentially the role of the Jew. From Elohim, which is that second name of God representing concealment, representing the fact that his presence is eclipsed in this world. From that, 
laughter is generated. From that very opposition, a new type of joy is generated. Because when the human being, and when the Jew comes into such a world which is defined by the concealment of Elikim, and penetrates the husk, and pierces through the veils, and discovers the light of God, and builds a relationship with God, from the Kenegdai, from the very opposition, a great azer, a great help is created. So the next time your wife disagrees with you, or the next time you disagree with God emotionally, psychologically, and you ask yourself, if God is real, why, do I, why don't I feel it? Why do I disagree? Don't get frustrated and don't get depressed. On the contrary, this is an opportunity for you to experience the ultimate objective of your marriage and the ultimate objective of your existence. Have a wonderful night.